You're listening to The Over 50 Entrepreneur, the podcast that's dedicated to the business builders who are only getting started when most are winding down. This is the place to discover how to create more freedom from your business while growing the value of your business. Now here's your host, Rick Hadrava. Well, here we are again, guys. This is Rick Hadrava with another episode of the Over 50 Entrepreneur Podcast. You know, I met this young man in 2010, I believe. And while he is from Oklahoma, he resides in Colorado today. And right out of the gate, I liked Matt. Uh, he's a smart, smart guy. And you could tell that he was a true entrepreneur in the sense. And, you know, so I'll just Skip right in here to a little introduction today. Um, Our guest is Matt McClintock. He is the founding partner of Evergreen Legacy Planning, a national law firm that is based in Evergreen, Colorado. He helps entrepreneurs and affluent individuals and their families manage private affairs in protective tax-efficient structures. His practice focuses on innovative legal solutions for businesses and other complex or unusual assets and families that are seeking to preserve, protect wealth for future generations. Matt has a special interest in tax-effective and efficient planning and succession for Bitcoin and similar crypto assets, which is an increasingly significant part of his practice. I personally can't wait to dive into that uh, because I'm curious as to what that looks like. Matt is, you know, he's a leader in designing and implementing creative legal solutions to maximize protection and privacy and minimize tax liability. Matt is admitted to practice law in Colorado, Wyoming, and Alaska. Matt has been recognized by his peers as a super lawyer's rising star for his contributions to excellence, innovation, and collaboration. Matt is also the founder of Bespoke Protector Company, LLC, which provides services as like trust advisor, trust protector, non-member manager of closely held LLCs, and other custom tailored services to make complex trusts work efficiently. He's a member of the Colorado, Wyoming, and Alaska Bar Associations, Wealth Council, and the American Bar Association Real Property Trust and Estate Section. Wow, he does a lot, doesn't he, guys? He speaks and writes frequently on a wide range of strategic legal topics, including creative leverage of the laws of various jurisdictions, designing and administering complex directed trust, and the intersection of estate planning, tax, and again, cryptocurrencies. Can't wait to dig into that. Matt lives in Evergreen, Colorado. He's an avid reader and a cyclist. I know personally that's one of the things that attracted him to Colorado. He volunteers on the board of directors for Team Evergreen, a nonprofit cycling club that has donated more than $2 million to nonprofit organizations in Colorado and other states. Matt is married, has two grown amazing daughters who are pursuing their own dreams, helping those who cannot help themselves. Wow. So I think you're going to get a lot, you get a taste for for who our guest is today, and I think you're going to get a lot out of it. And so without further ado, let's welcome to the Over 50 Entrepreneur Podcast, my friend, Matt McClintock. Matt, thanks for being on the show today. Thanks a lot, Rick. Thanks for having me. It's a great honor to to share this time with you. Well, you know, I'm reading that bio, and, and it just strikes me, you've done a lot in a short amount of time. Why don't we start with the obvious? You're from Oklahoma. How did how did you get started in law in the first place? 
that's kind of funny. I, I, I think I fell kind of backwards into it. So I grew up in Shawnee and met and married a woman who's still my wife. Fortunately, uh, we met in college in Shawnee and then, um, I got into politics. First of all, I started in, uh, a governor in the governor's campaign in the early nineties. I worked on governor Frank Keating's campaign. And through that process, I really developed an interest in politics, in um, government, and I really wanted to up my street cred, if you would, and, and become a, a policymaker. I kind of wanted to become one of those policy guys working in Washington, D.C. So um, uh, in talking with one of my mentors, one of my mentors recommended, you know, you really need to get a law degree if you want to have any kind of career in politics. And so that's what I did. I, I left politics, went full-time into law school, really with the intent of going back into politics. But through the law school experience, and during that period of time we had our, our daughters were born, um, I thought, you know, I'm really not as interested in politics as I thought I was. And I really developed an interest in tax planning, in trusts and trust design. And that was really an idea that was birthed in law school. And so then when I, when I came out of law school, I decided that's where I'm going to dedicate my, my career. And so I, I turned my back on politics and, and focused full on in the practice of law. And I've been doing that. It's actually 20 years ago this month that I graduated from law school. Well, congratulations. Uh, so the interesting part of that is you go to law school and you come out of law school and you decide to focus on the planning side from a legal perspective versus litigation and that. And why was that so appealing to you versus the other? You know, probably a fairly conflict averse kind of guy at my core. I like to solve problems, not not really create problems if I can avoid it. Um, and so I don't know that the planning side of it really appealed to me because I have this I just have a passion for helping people solve problems, come up with creative solutions for problems that are sometimes really difficult to manage. You know, honestly, there's there's a, a part of me that that just thinks that an awful lot of tax is voluntary, and uh, if people can figure out how to opt out of some of the taxes that they don't otherwise have to pay, well, then that's a good thing. Um, so that's where I just decided to focus my practice. Nothing against litigators. Um, that's just not a, I don't think I have a temperament, I don't think, to be a prosecutor or a defense attorney or even a civil litigator. It's just not not part of my makeup. I understand. Well, at what point did you decide that not only do I want to do this, but I don't want to work for somebody else. I want to own my own my own business. Yeah, that's a great question because I, you know, I didn't start out hanging a shingle or starting my own practice like a lot of attorneys do. I started out going in as an associate in a boutique estate planning law firm in Oklahoma City and did that for a few years, um, moved to a different law firm doing the same type of stuff, but a slightly larger firm with a bit more robust practice. And I think that's probably where you and I met. And then from there, I transitioned into kind of more the academic side of estate planning law and got into legal research, legal writing, teaching the law to other lawyers. And I did that for almost 11 years, I guess. And it was during that stint, during that 11-year stint from 2006 to 2017, I guess, it was during that period of time I spent, I, I did a stint as 
chief executive officer for that company that I was working for. It's a closely held company, still active today, but I got a taste of executive leadership, strategy, design, articulating a strategy for an organization. And I think that's probably what sparked an entrepreneurial drive in me. And you know, I did that for a long time. And I was fortunate enough that our company had a lot of success through that. And so I got a taste of, of success in leadership and in, strategy, in setting a strategy and executing on that strategy. But I didn't own it. I didn't control it. And um, I was a salaried guy. I had bonus and stuff like that, but I had no equity. And so I thought, you know, uh, I feel like I've got the skill set now to be a visionary and to be a strategic leader, but I'm not satisfied leading somebody else's company. I want to be the master of my own fate, if you will, as much as I can be. And I want to, I, I want to control, you know, I want to be able to execute strategies that I can personally directly profit from and honestly, personally bear the expense of failure on. Um, you know, I think that when you are the business owner, as you well know, the success of the entity rises and falls on your leadership. And if you are the owner of the company or you're one of the principal owners of the company, that is a direct impact on every facet of your life. So um, I don't know. I, I just kind of saw that I had a, a taste and I think a bit of an aptitude for it, uh, for entrepreneurial leadership and decided uh, it was in 2017. So just three years ago, um, again, three years ago this month that uh, we started, my, my business partner and I started our law practice together to be able to control our own destiny and to do, to do our business our way. Yeah. And I think that that is um, a theme that we see constantly. Uh, people coming out of a corporate environment or they just they've gotten the experience and, and they want to put their own stamp on it and, and deal with the kind of clients that they want to do and solve the kind of problems the way they want to. And and that's what's great about the whole entrepreneurial journey is it's never a boring day, is it? <laughs> that's right. So, 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 my, that's right. so my question is here, you've been doing this for three years. What have you learned along the way? In the context of of the business? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that probably one of my key learnings is that it's trite to say, but it's so true, you know, with great freedom comes great responsibility. I think that's absolutely true in owning a business. You know, when you, when you own a business, when you're the entrepreneur and you can set the course, there's tremendous freedom that comes from that. It's, it's your vision. You articulate that vision. You, you craft that and refine that over time. And you get to carry that out and you've got the freedom of making this business be the business you want. But the other side of that is there's a tremendous amount of responsibility in executing on that and being able to revisit and pivot as new opportunities open up or new threats arise or as new competition comes into the market or whatever. And so you have a great responsibility, I think, not just to your family, because they're going to be the ones who the most immediate impact, but also you have tremendous responsibility to your clients or to your customers. And I think you also have a responsibility to the mission of your business. I think that a business has to exist for something more than just making money. I think it has to serve a, a broader purpose. Um, I think there should be a problem that your business is trying to solve. And I think that part of the responsibility of the entrepreneur 
is to be a steward of that sense of responsibility and make sure that as the company grows and evolves over time, you don't lose sight of the purpose and the problem that you're trying to solve. Matt, that's that's so great. We we love mission, and we always I always joke nobody ever does business with somebody because they have a great mission statement. But as a leader, if you can visualize, if you can articulate the mission, which really boils down to understanding who your clients are and what the problem is you solve, and if it, that that just makes its way through your clientele. It makes your way through your team when they can all understand and articulate that. Um, and you're growing when you, when you're solving bigger problems and you evolve as a business owner, the financial has a way of, of being the scorecard, but ultimately the satisfaction is solving those problems for people. And, and it's mm-hmm. great. I, I'm glad you said that. Well, that gets me. So I'm, I want to come back to this Bitcoin and crypto assets because we'll, we'll, we'll make that a problem that you've figured out um, how to solve. What I'm curious about is, in my understanding, the reading that I've done, trying to understand Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrencies or crypto assets, as, as you referenced, what I understand is that blockchain technology is really the backbone of this whole thing. And what I don't understand is if if the blockchain, if the importance of that is authenticating you know, the inception of an asset and who has ownership, why is planning and the work that you do, why is that so important in the um, crypto space? I don't want to necessarily get into too technical of a, a discussion on blockchain and crypto, but I think it's important to understand that the two are related, but not the same thing. Blockchain simply refers to how the data is managed. Um, in, instead of a centralized data store, if you will, like a web server somewhere, a blockchain is a decentralized network of computers, effectively, that validate um, transactions that occur on that network. So it becomes, as the network itself grows, it becomes what is often referred to as anti-fragile. The bigger it gets, the more robust it is and the less likely it is to break down um, or to be hacked or or somehow threatened by outside forces. And so a blockchain provides this single immutable version of the truth. It's a ledger that cannot be tampered with unless you somehow figure out how to go back and undo all the prior transactions of data on that blockchain. The blockchain itself is simply a technology. Where cryptocurrency factors in is cryptocurrency, I like to look at that as the financial incentive to dedicate resources to validate the transactions that take place on that network. So in a a conventional data storage environment, whether you're using a, you know, a web server like Google or Amazon or whatever, or you have a private server in your office, um, you know, if you've got a large you know, third party who's hosting your data, well, they're financially incentivized through your licensing fees, through leveraging your data that you give them in participating in their networks. Um, they have a financial incentive to continue to make their data storage secure. But if you decentralize, the the data storage and now you have just a bunch of peers 
operating on a network like the Bitcoin network, for example. Well, how are you going to motivate people to dedicate computing resources, dedicate the energy, the electricity that uh, it takes to run those machines? How are you going to incentivize them to to dedicate those resources? Because the moment it becomes uninteresting to them, why would they do it? Well, that's where the cryptocurrency function comes in. It becomes a monetary reward, if you will, or a value that incentivizes people to dedicate resources to make that network robust. So, you know, as people kind of get curious about how Bitcoin works and how the broader crypto world works, I mean, I can tell you it is a very deep rabbit hole that I started tumbling down uh, in 2017. There's, there's, no denying that regardless how the technology works, you can almost say it doesn't matter. Regardless how the technology works, there is significant real-world wealth tied up in Bitcoin, Ethereum, all kinds of other cryptocurrencies that are out there. Um, so Bitcoin itself has about a $10 billion market cap. Chump change compared to a lot of other things. But I've got some clients who are centimillionaires, so 100 million bucks or more, and their wealth is in Bitcoin. I've got other clients who have just even a few hundred thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin. But you can almost throw out how the technology works and what the crypto is. It's still real wealth. And cryptocurrency, which is just a shorthand for any of these digital assets that have monetary value, cryptocurrency is what lawyers would refer to as a digital bearer instrument, like a bearer bond, like a cash, like a, like a, you know, like cash, like a reserve note, something like that. If you have possession of what are called the private keys, which control the access to that crypto on the blockchain, if you possess those private keys, you possess the crypto itself. So within the Bitcoin and broader crypto world, there's, there has long been a movement for what's referred to as self-sovereignty. This notion of, I don't have to deposit my Bitcoin in a bank. I don't have to deposit my Bitcoin with a custodian. I can be self-sovereign. I can be my own bank. Um, and by being their own bank, they don't share their private keys with anybody. The challenge with that is that just like with any other issue we run into in my world of estate planning, if you are a Bitcoin holder and you become incapacitated, how is your spouse or your kids or your partner or other people that you care about, how are they going to get access to your Bitcoin? If you die, how are they going to get access to that Bitcoin? If you don't have a very clearly laid out succession plan around your crypto, then the wealth that you have amassed in this very nascent asset class is going to be effectively frozen and unaccessible on a blockchain because you can't call 1-800-BITCOIN and get your crypto back. It's not like you can call your bank and, and get them to you know, change your account. It doesn't work that way. So if you, are, if you are the only person who has access to your private keys, then something happens to you, your crypto is locked up. But if you 
give your private keys to somebody else, to a successor trustee. Well, now that successor trustee could abscond with your crypto. Um, so a lot of what we have been working on in our practice is how do we apply the state planning and wealth succession strategies that we've done for decades now in conventional assets like real estate and equities or whatever, how do we apply those legal strategies to this new asset class of digital bearer instruments in the form of cryptocurrency? And how do we talk about that to the crypto investment community in a way that they, that they know we know what we're talking about, that uh, they can trust us to design and implement strategies that are as close to true to the Bitcoin ethos as possible while still getting them the tax leverage they're looking for and creating a succession framework to make sure that when, not if, but when they either become incapacitated or die, the wealth that they've amassed in crypto passes on to the next generation. Very, very good point. Uh, I hadn't thought about um, <laughs> all those opportunities. It's, it's like anything else. It fits into a plan. And I, um, here's what I'm curious about. You obviously see an opportunity in this space because this is kind of, I, I think it's one of the things um, I get, a, I get a sense that this is one of the things you guys have really dug into and you're really good at. Um, where does this fit in the focus of your company as you look out three, four, 10 years from now? It's, it is very sharply in focus. I mean, this is one of the things that I think is a unique core competency that, that we're able to, that, that we have. And it's, this is something that gives us a unique spot in the market that we can fill. I think that's in kind of more broadly, I think that that is one of the things that entrepreneurs have to do is think about not just where the industry is today, but where is the industry going? Where should the industry go? It's like the famous Wayne Gretzky quote. You don't, don't skate to where the puck is. You skate to where the puck is going. Um, and I think that for me, there's, there's just, and the more I've learned about crypto and the more I've gotten involved in the crypto community, um, the more I start to understand the natural market cycles that take place in Bitcoin and the effects that, that those market cycles have on the broader crypto community. And I also watch the news and see what's going on in the broader financial markets as, as they talk about Bitcoin as well. I think that this is, I've, it's a financially, um, this is a this is an asset class that is increasing in an awareness for the vast majority of Americans. Um, more and more people are curious about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. So not only is a lot of the financial market interest going there, there are all, there are already a lot of people in the United States and abroad. I mean, we've got a lot of clients even beyond the United States who have crypto assets that do not have a succession plan in place. And I don't know of any other law firm that's out there that does what we do with sophisticated estate planning in the crypto space. So for me, as a business owner, I see this as a wide open market. Nobody's there. We've got a three-year head start, two and a half year head start. Um, and we're starting to get some name recognition in the space. So it's for me, gosh, it's probably 
it's one of the things, it's probably one of maybe two or three things that we're going to really be focusing our marketing energy and efforts on in the next six months to 36 months. Well, I appreciate you sharing that because, you know, we call that monopoly control and it, it helps give you a competitive advantage and, and that adds to the value of an organization um, intrinsically. What key trends or mistakes have you seen, are you seen, and, and specifically what I'm talking about, Matt, is in the work that you do when it relates to business owners, because I got to think that you do interact with um, a lot of entrepreneurs. What, can you share kind of some of your observations? Yeah. And this is really totally unrelated to crypto. I mean, this happens in yeah. crypto, but this is just, this is just a, the reality, I think, whether you're a business owner or whatever. I think that there, there are a few that stand out to me. One is a lot of people view estate planning as a to-do item or a chore that has to get done. I put done in air quotes. Um, you know, I, in my opinion and in my experience, estate planning really needs to, be a di- needs to be a dynamic process that evolves over time with you, with your family, with your wealth, and with the law as the law continues to evolve whether it's federal tax law or your local state law or the laws of other jurisdictions. Um, And it also needs to evolve as new emerging strategies develop over time. There's nothing in your life that is static. Everything in your life is dynamic. Why should your estate plan be any different? Your estate plan has to be dynamic to keep up with your life and with the externalities that impact your life. So that's probably the biggest mistake I see people make. In the case of business owners, I see one of the biggest mistakes is they're too busy working in the business to think about how the value that that business, how the value of that business will ultimately pass on to their kids. Estate planning is this thing they don't want to think about. They don't want to think about their mortality. They don't want to take the time away from their business to think about these other issues that might happen someday. Well, fun fact, it will happen someday. It's not may happen. It will happen someday that that you're going to pass away or that you're going to become disabled. And that business for most business owners is the single most valuable asset that will ultimately have to transition if it gets carried on into a future generation through your spouse and part through your spouse or partner or through your kids or whether the company is going to have a liquidation event and the wealth from that liquidation gets passed to your kids. If you don't take the time away from your business, as painful as that sounds, to focus on what's going to happen to that business as well as with your other assets when you're no longer around, that's a huge mistake. You know, a couple others that I think are are worth talking about. I don't know how many times I've heard, Rick, people say, you know, I'm just not wealthy enough to need a trust. I'm not complex, whatever. Nobody thinks that they're complex and nobody thinks they're wealthy. That's just, that seems like that's just a truism. But, you know, often the appropriate estate planning strategy depends a lot more on what people want to accomplish than how much money they have at stake. Um, Trusts are typically appropriate for people who want to have an organized and really importantly, I think, private plan. They can privatize the process 
for their families to avoid court proceedings if they become incapacitated, to avoid court proceedings once they die, and no matter how modest or how vast the estate is, using trusts allows you to provide excellent protection and and unparalleled opportunities for the people that you care the most about. So, um, you know, there's there's this mindset out there that trusts are only for the mega wealthy. That is just so not true. It's so not true. Um, and I, I think the final mistake that is probably one of the most pervasive that I see is people don't share their plans with their loved ones. Too often people either, they don't want to be morbid and talk about what happens when they die, or they're too private. And they don't want to share their plans with their kids or with their grandkids or whatever. Um, you know, over the course of 20 years, I've seen that estate plans work a lot better. No matter how well they're designed, they just generally work better when there are no surprises and when the family understands how the plan works and why. So it goes back to communication and, and Critical. we see it, we see it with families and individuals and business owners all the time. And, you know, especially it gets complicated when there's partners involved as well, because now you've got another layer of complexity. So it's great. I really appreciate you sharing that. Matt, we, I could talk to you forever. Um, we always have great conversations. Unfortunately, we're coming to the end of our show today and I want, you to be able to share with our audience, you know, how they can learn more about you and your firm. But I also want you to take your estate planner, your lawyer hat off for a second. And as an entrepreneur, if you were to share just one, one piece of advice for entrepreneurs, whether they're older, been around for a while, or they're thinking about just launching, is there something that comes to your mind that you'd be willing to share? Yeah. Um, you know, and it really took a lot of thinking as really as I was getting ready for this conversation to articulate this, I think that people really ought to have hobbies that use your brain in ways that your business doesn't. I think people should find a passion that challenges their mind and feeds their body. For me, what that means is I've found that physical exercise, as well as hobbies that still require me to think, but to think in ways that are different from my business, those types of hobbies really help me refocus my energy in the office. And then I bring new ideas and best efforts when I come back refreshed, physically energized, and my brain has, has had a bit of a reset. You bet. That's, that's great advice. Um, I appreciate, I really appreciate you sharing that. Well, listen, like I said, how, how do, if somebody in our audience hears this and they want to learn more about you, the firm or the work that you're doing, what's the best way for somebody to connect with you or to learn more? I'm uh, I'm fairly active on LinkedIn, so they can always send me an invitation on LinkedIn to connect. If they do do that, um, I would ask if they, that they reference you, Rick, and they reference this podcast. So I know that it's not just a, a cold intro, but certainly feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. And then I would encourage people to check out our website, evergreenlegacyplanning.com. Those are probably the best ways that people can connect with me and and start to follow. Perfect. Perfect. And, you know, we'll put those on our, on our website with the show notes and you can check that out at epicsbiz.com forward slash podcast. That's epic sbiz.com forward slash podcast. And, you know, don't, 
don't uh, forget that we're doing a series of Friday Zoom calls. We've had some great guests on, like John Chance from Duct Tape Marketing, Bob Berg from The Go-Giver, and more. If you'd like to learn about those or any of the live events that we're doing, check out our website for more information or email me simply at rick at epicsbiz.com. And again, that's rick at epic sbiz.com. Guys, we appreciate you. Matt, we appreciate you being on the show today. And everybody, until next time, remember, we're only getting started. The Over 50 Entrepreneur Podcast is sponsored by Epic Business Advisory, where we help entrepreneurs escape the owner's trap, build businesses that can succeed without you, allowing you the opportunity to realize more freedom, think bigger, and pursue next-level goals. Download our freedom formula at epicsbiz.com slash formula. And remember, we're only getting started.